You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, we speak with painter Rob Shetterly, creator of the Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series, about the events that galvanized him into creative action and brought courageous truth-telling and powerful true histories into people's lives all across America. You know, I was in the position, I think, of many Americans feeling kind of alienated, isolated, and despairing about how this country was being misled and if anything could be done about it. And then you start to travel and you start to meet people and see what's going on in places and that is not reported on our corporate news. And you're just stunned at the good work, the, the courageous work, the persistent work, the joyful work that's being done all over the place. This is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Aguanu, Willie welcome. It's a beautiful day here in the Dawnland. I'm coming to you this morning from the shores of the beautiful Penobscot River here in central Maine. And I'm here today with my amazing co-host, Ms. Rivera Sun, and our special guest today, Robert Shetterly. Hello, Rivera. Hi, Sherry. It's great to be on the air with you again. You know, my Thoughts this week have been really full of a lot of subjects that David Bollier brought up last week on the show about the commons and some of your comments about how we approach our natural resources as not resources, not something separate from us, but something very integrally connected to our being that we are really talking about ourselves when we're talking about the water, the land, the air. There's a, a layer of truth in looking deeply at our interconnected nature and reframing our approach to life from that perspective. And the the level of looking at the truth, confronting the truth, and really being willing to redefine ourselves based on our ability to see, perceive, and integrate truth is something that's going to come up as a theme on today's show with Robert Shetterly, who is a painter who has done the Americans Who Tell the Truth series, which many of our listeners will probably be familiar with. Robert Shetterly moved to Maine in 1970 after teaching school in West Virginia. He started teaching himself to paint once he moved to Maine in actually a surrealist style. He wasn't doing portraits at first. Then 9-11 happened, and like many people in this country, it was a galvanizing force. Depending on your side of the issue, it was a galvanizing force for working for peace or working for war. But Robert chose to go the direction of talking about truth in a time of lies and deception and started painting the Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series. And he's going to talk a little bit about that journey later on in the show. Welcome, Rob. Oh, 
so nice to be talking with both of you. Thank you very much for having me on. Rob, we're so excited to have you on the show today, and I'm really looking forward to this dynamic conversation that we're about to have. I'm very familiar with your work. Rivera is familiar with your work. But I'm hoping that you can tell our listeners about this project, this exciting project that you've been working on now for 10 years, Americans Who Tell the Truth. Oh, I'd love to. And, and you know, it actually just passed its 14th year uh, anniversary in, in January. So uh, it began, I began painting these portraits actually kind of against my own desires in a funny way uh, in January of 2002. And even though it gets um, located, you know, in the sense around 9-11, it was what came right after it that triggered this response in me. It was the deceptive claims of our government about why we needed to start the war against Iraq. I was so upset. I was so full of anger that we were being lied to in this way, and I was so full of grief that all the victims they were going to be of this war and all over the place, and also so ashamed of my own country that it was using this kind of deception, this fear, this propaganda, fundamentalism, racism, you know, all those things that get involved when you start promoting a war against the best interests of your own country. I knew that I had to respond some way with the thing I do best, which is paint pictures. And just how I would do that took me several months to figure out because of the rage I felt. And actually, what what I think um, Perry Tempest Williams calls sacred rage, when there's a gross injustice about to happen and you realize that you've got to do something in response to it. But I didn't know what. But I did know that I to be effective, it would not, it, it couldn't be just you know using my anger or using my grief or using my shame. I had to find some way to do something positive with those emotions, you know, capture the energy of those emotions, but do something positive with it. And finally, it, what occurred to me was that I was so, a lot of the, the, the stress I was in was because I was so surrounded by the people and, and engulfed in the, in the ill will of the people that I was distressed about. Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush and Condoleezza Rice and, you know, Colin Powell and these people who are promoting this war. And I thought, you know, I've got to get them out of my mind. And then I thought, well, why don't I start surrounding myself with people that I admire from the country who make me feel good, make me feel proud, make me feel inspired to act myself for, as you mentioned earlier, the common good. And that's where it began. And I painted a portrait of, you know, our great poet, Walt Whitman. And he was, a, for me, the perfect place to start because he was a person who, 150 years ago, realized that it's not just about democracy, and democracy meaning the relationship, the political relationships between people. It's about the essential equality of all living things. And until we understand that, we're going to be in trouble. So I chose him as my first portrait. You know, I could have, of course, you know, when I looked at it later, when I began it, thought a little bit more about that and, and began with... Um, Native people, indigenous people, who understood that a long time before Walt Whitman. But that came later. I mean, I, that they all got included, too. But I painted one portrait. I thought, that's all I would do. I will paint one portrait. I'll feel better because I've made a certain kind of statement, and that'll be the end of it. But that didn't happen. I painted Walt Whitman. I put it up on the wall in our house and felt better for a few days as I looked into his eyes every day and read his words that were on that portrait. And then... Uh, 
I started to get upset again, and I one day I was, a few days later, I was ranting again to my wife, Gail, about what was going to, you know, this, this war that was coming and how it was being promoted. And she said to me, why don't you paint another portrait? You were such a nice guy when you were painting Walt Whitman. <laughs> you, know, I was, you know, I was so involved with him and reading about him and reading his poetry and looking for this quote to put on the painting and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I was totally absorbed. And so I, I just looked at her. I said, you're right. I'm going to paint 50 portraits. I'm going to call them Americans who tell the truth, and then I'm going to give them all away. And there was this moment there where I felt like I had just levitated. I felt so free, probably more free than I'd ever felt in my life. I mean, in the sense that I could now, even though I had no idea whom I was going to paint, I had this sense that I was going to dedicate a serious amount of time to making a really sort of loving and defiant statement about this country. And it was going to be, I was going to be free to say anything I wanted to say with it because it was not going to be commercial. You know, I wasn't going to try to sell it. It was something I would give. And it it began this incredible journey for me of first my own education, and then gradually this portrait project has become a project about education, which I had never envisioned at all. So you began with Walt Whitman, and how many do you have in the series now, and who are some of the people in the series? <laughs> well, I... My goal was 50, and frankly, I never thought that I would paint 50 portraits. I mean, I had never painted a portrait at this time. and I mean, I'd been painting, but not as a portrait painter. But now they're 217, I think. It's just, I got to 50 in about, I don't know, two years, two and a half years, and maybe three years, and then felt like I'm just beginning to understand something about this country's history about who the people are who have driven some of the most important movements in this country. As I kept painting, I realized, oh, there's so many more people I wanted to do. And so I just, I couldn't stop. But it, when I began, I began as mostly 19th century figures. I was, you know, it was Walt Whitman, and then there was Frederick Douglass, and Sojourner Truth, and Chief Joseph, and Mother Jones, and Jane Addams, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and it was just on and on, all these 19th century figures. And Gradually, I worked my way up towards the, the beginning of the 20th century and had all these figures in the early women's movement then and then in the civil, early civil rights movements and social justice movements and then beginning of the environmental movement, on and on and on and on until I'm painting mostly contemporary people today. But, you know, some of the people that, you know, you may recognize today are, are people like Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book The New Jim Crow which is just, you know, around a mass incarceration issue in this in this country and uh, what it means, why it happens, who suffers from it, and then what can be done about it and how it also fits into the, the history of, of racism in this country, the legalized racism. And painted Muhammad Ali. I, and it's interesting to go into schools and talk to kids today about Muhammad Ali because he's one of the few people that I've painted who most kids know everywhere in the country, but they also have no idea why I would have painted him. Oh, you painted a famous boxer. Why would you paint a famous boxer in Americans to tell the truth? They're taught about him both in school and in our culture, but the important piece is left out. The most courageous thing he ever did was not get in the ring with Joe Fraser. It was to refuse to fight in the Vietnam War and lose his career for five years, lose millions of dollars, encourage the the ostracism of, and hatred of so many 
commentators in this country who called him a traitor, etc. It's an amazing story about the difference between physical courage of a fighter and the moral courage of a person who stands up for what he believes is right and the different reactions in a culture because of that. But, I mean, there's just so many people and, and, and also so much history that I learned in the, in the, in the process of this because I painted a lot of people around the civil rights movement and there's the obvious ones. There are people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and people like that. I don't think I ever knew anything about Ella Baker, the black woman who had helped, uh, had worked for the NAACP as a field organizer to help King start the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and then left that because of its male hierarchy and helped uh, the young people form, you know, the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Board Coordinating Committee. She was totally different vision about how civil rights should be done. Instead of sort of top down, it should be done grassroots up. And that model it became the model of SNCC, and then it became the model for many other people also doing different kinds of organizing in this country. And Ella Baker was a, an extraordinary person with an extraordinary life who I knew nothing about and most people are not taught about today. That's become one of the primary thrills of this project is myself learning about so much history that I not hadn't been taught myself and then also being able to talk about it with other people and try to inspire them with both ideas and lives that are powerful for them and can help them confront the kinds of issues we all face today. I could listen to those stories all day and I think that there would be so much that I would gain from hearing them. One of the things that I want to know is how has this work changed the way that you view the world and the problems that we face and the way that we um, must engage those problems? Because surely it's had an impact on you in some really profound ways, and I'd like to hear about that. Thank you, Sherry. What an interesting question. Well, I've been changed completely in, in, in a certain sense. I, As a surrealist painter, I was a person who liked to spend most of his time in his studio by himself indulging my peculiar imagination and searching for a very different kind of truth than I than I do with the portrait project. I was fascinated with the, the mysteries and complexities of our internal lives, psychological, emotional, and using curious images to find a way into that mystery. I liked making pictures that I knew not everyone would like, but might encourage some people to use their imaginations to invent their own narratives and also explore their own their own mystery because of the pictures. It was a very different way of using art. I mean, this what I'm doing now with these portraits takes me out of my studio all the time. It takes me into schools, colleges, churches, museums all over the United States to talk about history, ethics, citizenship, the power of an individual person, the power of organizing, and then have all these models to present to people to use for their own role models. So I've become, had to become a very public person when I was a very private person before. I've actually really been thrilled about that change, partly because it's just interesting change to explore for myself, but also in the same way that I thought the reason I started this project was because I thought it was so necessary that we don't obviously choose the time in which we live. And we happen to live in a time that's full of 
a, a number of crises, uh, environmental crises, climate crises, economic crises, wealth disparity crises, war and peace. They're just everywhere, everywhere we look. And I felt if I'm going to be in this time, I have to engage these issues. I can no longer be having a conversation in my art through sort of about the history of art and the fascination of uh, our interior worlds. But not that that isn't important, but something was more important because the fate of this our species on this planet is now in question. And I just, I just got to engage that. And so I had to become a different person and I had to form a different kind of art, a kind of art that I had always disparaged, which was didactic art that confronts you and tries to teach you something and challenges you to think about what you're doing and what your own role is as a human being and as a citizen of the world and encourage you to engage in some way. Your journey really fascinates me, Robert. I have a really parallel experience having gone to a liberal arts school that had a strong postmodern dance department that was really not into narrative dance or theater and going out into the world and going through a slow transformative process where I realized that if I wanted to be of service in the world, if I wanted to talk and communicate with people, if I wanted to address the important issues of our time with art, that I needed to learn how to communicate with my audience, whoever it was, and eventually coming through dance and theater into writing, into novels that address the contemporary issues of our time. One of the things that's very parallel is this sense of lineage that emerges, that you realize through studying the stories of the past and contemporary stories that you're not alone, that the the love and the care in your heart is shared by so many people in this country. And we often hear through the media and through current events about the kind of the worst people in our country in terms of causing harm and destruction to others. And we don't always hear these incredible stories or how our country's history is shaped, not just by war and conquest and violence and oppression, but also by profound courage, profound movements for social change. In fact, the very emblems of what we think of as American values are created by movements such as the abolition movement, the women's rights movements, the suffragettes movements, the labor movements, uh, the anti-war movements, the anti-nuclear movements, the environmental movements, these predominantly nonviolent movements that have actually shaped what we take pride in as Americans versus this sort of false pride that goes along with the the spoils of conquest and war and oppression, I might say. You're exactly right about that. And it's it, I phrase it a little bit differently and maybe even more strongly in the sense that, you know, one of the things that happened at the very founding of our country, and if you, I mean, you can make a, a number of different, appointed a number of different places where you could call that founding. But let's just say we signed our Constitution, and our Constitution was signed, and it, it declared that we were going to build a country based on justice and equality and law, etc. It didn't happen. Only well-to-do white men got that justice and got that equality. Everybody else was left out. Slaves weren't freed. Free blacks, Native Americans, women, etc. didn't get rights. At that moment, we had separated what we say from what we actually do, our walk from our talk. And for me, then, the most noble and important part of our history begins, which is 
to try to connect those two things again, to make us actually walk our own talk. Who's going to do that? It's not obviously the people in power who have benefited from the way they have structured it already. That work is going to have to be done by the marginalized, the people who've been purposely excluded. They are going to have to do it. And it's one of the greatest ironies of our history that the greatest courage of the people of this country has been required to make, to force the country to live up to its own ideals. And that, when that happens, you know, that is when we have our justification as a nation. That's when we gain some measure of nobility. That's when we see something that we can all be proud of as a country and bond us as a country, when we actually achieve those things for everyone, that we, you know, we're restricted to the rights of just a few. And those are the people that I want to paint. And unfortunately, the first thing I hear a lot of times when I say to people, I'm painting this series of portraits, I call them Americans who do, you know, who speak or tell the truth. And people look at me like I'm an idiot and say, well, there are any? And it's this generalized cynicism that runs deeply into our culture now that produces that kind of a statement. And I could have said that at times myself. But then you start to look, you look beyond the corporate media, and our country is full of great people who are expending and have expended enormous courage and energy to try to get us to live up to our own ideals. And it's a very exciting to begin to identify people like that and then present them to young people especially as a, a place to begin thinking about how to live a good life. That's where I want to jump in because one of the aspects of your work that I find really empowering and important and vital really is this aspect that connects to teaching. And as you've stated, there are so many stories that have been ignored. And of course, you know, I believe that we have a responsibility to create a new narrative to frame our movement forward. And one of the ways that we do that is by telling the truth about the history that we're operating under. Sadly, many young people today are incredibly uninformed, underinformed about the realities of the world that they're living in. They're more concerned with pop culture than they are accurate history. And so we also have this component in there where there are those who have a vested interest that's served by keeping young people ignorant of their own history. And one of the things that you have on your website is this statement about or a question whose interests are served by keeping young people ignorant of their own history, unaware of the importance of citizenship and unaware of the inspiring role models from the past and present who could help solve our most pressing problems. And I think that when you're out there and you're teaching, because I understand that there's a whole curriculum now that's developed as a result of this. So when you're teaching these young people about these histories and these contemporary role models, you're actually helping to frame a new story going forward, which is really exciting to me. And I would love it if you would talk about the curriculum and the teaching component a little bit more deeply. Oh, I'd love to. But, you know, curiously, um, Sherry, just two days ago, three days ago, on Friday, I was in the Leonard Middle School in Old Town, not far from where you grew up. And I was talking to a bunch of girls, middle school girls, 14-year-olds. And in order to find out, which I often do in schools, is sort of where they're coming from, how much they know or don't know about their own history, I, I asked these girls, where 
where their own rights came from. Do they know the, the people who had fought, sacrificed, suffered, and persisted for so long to make sure that women had rights? They couldn't tell me anybody. Nobody. It was like talking to a bunch of trees that don't know they have roots. And you think, whoa, you find this everywhere. I've been in black high schools with intelligent high school kids, and nobody in a class can tell me the narrative of Rosa Parks. Nobody. They can't even sometimes get her in the right century. And you think, how is this possible? Not just the school, but the families, the parents. Don't they want to carry forward these stories? Don't they know how important they are? Anyway, we, it's because of that kind of thing that we realized we needed to, as Americans would tell the truth as a project, need to, to really work on education and not just have the show travel around and me go and give talks in various places, but get it really into the schools if we could. And so a couple of years ago, we came up with this idea of, I painted a number of young people, and, and those often when I present the portraits, when middle schoolers, high schoolers, you know, look at the portraits and they say, oh, wow, there's a, there's a teenager there. What did he do? What did she do? That's what really hooks them at first, that somebody their own age, somebody who was not old enough yet to vote, actually made profound change. And we based the program in Maine around the story of Samantha Smith, who was a, a little girl, 11 years old, growing up in Maine in the, in the early 1980s, who was terrified about the Cold War and asked her mother to write a letter to the premier of the Soviet Union at that time, Yuri Andropov, and ask him why he wanted to blow up Americans, why he wanted to start a nuclear war, why he was so aggressive, etc. And her mother, either to dismiss her or maybe because she was very wise, said, Samantha, why don't you write that letter? And so this little 11-year-old girl with a pencil wrote a letter of 126 words to the premier of the Soviet Union, Yuri Andropov, asking him those questions about war and peace and why she needed to be so scared to, to grow up in the world and put it in a box in, in uh, Manchester, Maine, Yuri Andropov, Kremlin, Moscow, Soviet Union. It got to him. He answered it. He first he published it on the front page of Pravda, you know, their state newspaper. And then he answered her. He wrote a letter to, to little Samantha saying, Dear Samantha, the Russians have just, you know, gone through this terrible war, the Second World War. We lost, you know, over 20 million people. Our country was devastated. We don't want war. Why don't you and your family come to the Soviet Union and find out for yourselves? We'll pay for it. And you can travel around and meet Russians and find out that we're a peace-loving people. Of course, once he wrote back, the letter, I mean, the response and this, this exchange of letters became news. It was talked about all over the place, all around the world, really. And then the big problem for Samantha and her family was, well, should we do this? I mean, the Russians were our enemy. Do you go and spend time with the enemy? And there were editorial writers all over the country saying, don't go, you'll be brainwashed. But they decided to go. And then she went to camp with Russian kids. She traveled all over the country. At the very end of it, there was this big press conference in Moscow. And uh, little tiny Samantha is being asked all these questions from correspondents from all over the world. They said, Samantha, what have you learned? Her parents were standing in the back just hiding their eyes saying, oh, my God, what's our giggly little girl going to say? And she said, well, I've discovered that the problems in the world come from our government, not our people that if we could just have people in the world meet each other, we would discover 
that we all have the same interests. He said, the Russians I've met are just like my friends and neighbors back in Manchester, Maine. The last thing they ever want in the world, for their futures, their schools, their communities, is a war. Why would they want a war that would destroy everything? It's our governments that cause these problems. This little girl at 11 became an international peace teacher. It's one of the key points of this, what I try to teach through this series, is that the greatest teacher is courage. You know, you don't have to go to a school of education to be a teacher. You just have to stand up with some courage about something important. Other people pay attention there. And that trajectory of Samantha's life was being in a beginning in a place of, of fear herself, hiding under the bed because of the possibility of a nuclear war, and then beginning to do something, writing a letter, another choice. She has to respond to the letter. They decide to go. She spends time with Russian kids. She begins to think about what she's seen and learning, and all of a sudden she's able to say something important about peacemaking. And then she becomes a spokesman for peace, all because of those steps she took, those courage, courageous steps. And we'll be back after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolent history. I'm just a fire burning from paper. I cannot hope for anything better. I'm lost in a desert of Cesar Chavez Day, commemorating Chavez's birthday on March 31st, is a day to celebrate the efforts of Chavez and the United Farm Workers and to help build a culture of nonviolence that strives for justice, equality, dignity, and respect. Nonviolence is not inaction, Cesar Chavez said. It is not discussion. It is not for the timid or weak. Nonviolence is hard work. It is the willingness to sacrifice. It is the patience to win. Cesar Chavez was born on March 31, 1927 in Yuma, Arizona. When his family lost their land and farm during the Great Depression, they moved to California to work as migrant laborers. Cesar Chavez worked as a farm laborer from 7th grade until 1952 when he became an organizer for community service organization. In 1962, he and Dolores Huerta would found the organization that would later grow into the United Farm Workers. On September 8, 1965, the Delano Grape Strike was initiated by Filipino workers who were then joined by Mexican workers. The five-year campaign used many tactics of nonviolent action, including consumer boycotts, picketing, demonstrations, and a 300-mile pilgrimage through California's Central Valley to Sacramento. The rallying cry of huelga, strike in Spanish, echoed through the 2,000 farm workers who supported the strike. The United Farm Workers also convinced the longshoremen in San Francisco Harbor to refuse to load the grape harvest onto ships, leaving the grapes to rot on the docks. Remember, as you commemorate Cesar Chavez's life and work on March 31st, the struggle continues to this day. Take a piercing look at how your food landed on your table. What do you know about the farm workers and the conditions that produced your food? Find out. If injustice is being served on your plate, 
Start looking for ways to work for change. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. Our featured music this week is called Desert of Love by the Dada Weatherman. Find more of this work on gemendo.com. And now, let's return to speaking with our special guest, Rob Shetterly. Well, we started this educational project here in, in the state of Maine, which is, is called the Samantha Smith Challenge, where we are asking young people not just to honor Samantha Smith by reading about her life and seeing what she did and all that sort of stuff, but to do something in her spirit. I mean, that's the real way to honor somebody, is to not just know about them, but to do something that, that honors what they tried to do. And so we have hundreds of kids every year all over the state asking a question about a, an important issue, researching that issue, finding who's involved in maybe both sides or all the different aspects of that issue, and then working towards a project that, that tries to do something about that issue, whether it's homelessness or food deprivation or climate change or teen suicide. or The kids pick their own issues. And there have been, last year in the project, there were 50 different issues with I don't know how many different projects. It was fantastic. I mean, kids said, oh, my God, I never realized that education could be relevant. This group of eighth graders from the Lyman Moore School in, in Portland, Maine, did a project on the, the effect it would have on people to get a living wage instead of just a minimum wage. They did such a good job that the uh, town council asked them to deliver their report to the town council in public, these middle school kids. That's what we're aiming at. We're trying to show that, one, young people can be involved, and it's great because they still have, they're not yet cynical about everything. They, they have idealism. They're smart enough to learn all the important things about the issue, and then they can actually do something. And it's thrilling. It's thrilling for all of us. It's thrilling for them. It's thrilling for me. It's thrilling for this project. It's thrilling for the teachers to see these kids so engaged. That's what I love about this education and using the portraits to inspire people that way. Speaking of engaged, you also have another project for education that is called Engage. I'm not sure how you say it, but Engage with a capital E-D at the end for education. Engage Ed. Engage Ed. Would you um, speak a little bit about what that project is? That project is just getting started, and what we're doing is asking the living truth tellers that I painted to write for us a lesson plan that we could use to with teachers to educate around their issue or one of their issues. And so that on the Americans Intelligence website, you see the portrait I painted, you read a biography, and often we provide resource links to interviews and videos and all this sort of subsidiary things that you can find out about the person. But now we, what we really want to do is also have a lesson from each or as many people as we can. And we've just begun to ask for those lessons. To us, it's really exciting so that, you know, when you meet the, the port- person in the portrait, you can learn about their life and then actually begin to do something and study something and, and work through something that is presented by that person. And then we also offer the opportunity to kids who are in the Samantha Smith Challenge to actually get in touch with, directly, with a portrait subject that they would like to ask questions to. So it makes it very personal. And they do video conferences, um, you know, Skype calls or uh, Google Hangouts and that kind of thing with 
the portrait subject. It's a really wonderful opportunity to deepen the connection because when we see something and we read something, we're still somehow separated from it. But when we can really engage someone in a human way and you know, look them in the eye and make real contact with them, it deepens our connection to them in ways that can't be done otherwise. One of the things that I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about, maybe not shift gears because I think it's all part of this, is this idea of truth and trust, that there's such incredible distrust that's um, risen up in the population towards our government. People really don't have a lot of trust because of all the shadow dancing, all of the deception, all of the lies that are being told, all of the media spin and the manipulation that's going on in regard to that, that there is an incredible lack of trust that exists right now. And part of this process is really developing trust between groups of people and engaging them in a way that has almost become a thing of the past in regard to real honesty and meeting people with integrity and a form of humanity that is rarely seen these days by those who get all of their information from the media. But those of us who are doing the work out in the world know that it exists everywhere. So can you talk a little bit about this connection between truth and trust and how we may be actually building and rebuilding, restoring this idea of trust within the society of one human being to another. So I think that's really imperative as we're moving forward. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes when I'm out going someplace to speak, I mean, one of the first challenges I get coming back at me is, isn't it a little bit presumptuous for me to call any project Americans who tell the truth? I mean, who am I to say what the truth is and isn't truth relative and all that stuff that you get when you make a claim like that. And I agree. And of course, I picked the title to be provocative in a way, but I also wanted to make some direct points about truth-telling. The first is I ask kids, why is it important to tell the truth? And sooner or later, somebody will say, well, trust, just what you said. And of course, that's the first thing. You can't have any relationship, whether it's a very close interpersonal relationship or with your school group, church group, tribe, whatever it is, or international relationships, unless there's some sense that you're both working towards the same goal and that you can trust each other because you're going to try to tell the truth. I mean, we know that there are lots of ways to look at different issues and there are relative truths and all that stuff, but that does not mean that the attempt to be honest isn't in itself a kind of truth. And without that, there is no trust. And if we don't have any trust, we're not going to have successful personal relationships, community relationships, or national or international relationships. If we're going to try to build towards solving any of these problems, we have to have at least that basic value that we're going to be trying to tell the truth, try to be honest with each other, listen to what the other person is saying, try to understand where they're coming from, and see if we can somehow go to to a place we need to go to together. You have to ask yourself, when you see the kind of cynicism and distrust and discord and partisanship that we are so plagued with today, 
that whose interest does it really serve for us not to be able to trust each other? And of course, when you, to me, this is like a corollary to asking the question about when you see something that appears to be dishonest or corrupt going on, that all journalists should ask themselves when they're trying to figure out what's why something's happening, well, follow the money. That's a very important part of this. The other thing is to, to follow the creation of distrust. It serves the interests of a lot of people for us not to be able to trust each other. In the same way that there's an enormous amount of money in, say, the war industry, the military-industrial complex, the, one of the foundation pieces of that is distrust. As long as we purposely dis, are taught to be distrustful of each other, we think we need weapons. We think we need to be belligerent. We need to have a war on terrorism, all that kind of stuff. The distrust part is very purposeful. It serves the interests of a lot of people, and it maintains a kind of status quo that serves the interests of those people. And that's why I think it's so hard to go up against it, because so many powerful forces are being served by distrust, just as they're being served by an economy that, that runs on violence. I think there's another component in there, too, Rob, about democracy. You have a great quote on your website about your the idea that you're after a simple truth here, that democracy without well-educated and active citizens can do nothing but fail. That's a quote on your website. Yeah. And it really harkens back to something you said earlier in the show, that when we signed the Constitution, it was designed to keep all but 6% of the nation disempowered. And that the we've never lived up to our rhetoric since then. We've had these amazing, courageous attempts to match our words and our actions. But what we're in now is a whole new wave of that going on. And it's it's not over until until as the famous quote says, we're not free until all are free. We don't have liberty until all have liberty. We don't have justice until all have justice. We don't have uh, truth until all have truth. And in in this truth-telling, there's a very fundamental thing about democracy can't work unless we have honesty, unless we have inquiry, unless we have scrutiny, transparency, uh, and education. Sherry and I talk a lot about direct democracy versus representative republics here on our show. And one of the major points about a direct democracy where people themselves ha ha are voting directly on the issues that affect them is that we need real information. We can't have lies and deception or we make unwise decisions. Will you talk a little bit about the importance of not just truth-telling, but dissent and freedom of speech and the mass media in terms of what is going on in our country in, in relationship to our ability to self-govern and relate to each other and how these lies and deceptions on all these levels of our society, actually, they become the fog of illusion uh, that keeps us from making wise decisions. How, how have you seen that in your own personal life and then also around the educational work of the Americans Who Tell the Truth Project? That's so important. One of the fields, I mean, it's, one spends time looking at the, the website, you can see that, or looks at the portrait galleries, you notice that they can be sorted by all sorts of themes. And one of the themes that I've been filling in more recently is whistleblowing. Almost every major system or institution in this country develops a kind of ethic against 
making public what's really going on inside that institution and how the truth of, of what they're doing, why they're doing it, what corners are being cut, where the money's going, you know, is all suppressed and what laws are being broken in the name of being a good corporate citizen or a good citizen of the you know, of the government. The people who have the courage, one of our, our of course, our most our greatest of these modern day whistleblowers is Daniel Ellsberg, who blew the whistle on the what was really what the government really knew about the Vietnam War and what they were suppressing and all that kind of stuff. That kind of dissent. Let's put it another way. Just as you were saying about the importance of education for citizenship, that we can't be good citizens. The country can't be of and for and by the people unless the people actually know what's going on. Most of the time, citizens of this country are patronized by a corporate and governmental establishment that says, we're going to keep our secrets. We do this because it's for the good of you. These are important and classified things that we should know, and you can trust us to act in your interest because we know these things and we'll do what is necessary. Well, all of us should know enough by now, if we look at any of our history, to know that's not true. They often act very much against our our interests, and they keep those secrets in order to hide certain kinds of law-breaking and corruption. That is not a democracy. Secrecy is the antithesis and the enemy of democracy. If we are going to be real citizens, we have to be partners in knowing what the country's doing, why they're doing it, how our money is being spent, whose interests are being served. And we can't do that unless we know and demand to know and want to know. You, A lot of people, you run into people today who say, oh, I, I don't want to know this stuff. It's too depressing or it's too big. It's too complicated. It's It's scary. I don't want to know. You've got to know. And it isn't too big. It isn't too complicated. It's often surprisingly simple. And we have to ask our schools to do a much better job because they censor themselves, they censor history, they censor stories about citizenship, they censor courage. Dissent is the prerequisite of a democracy. Dissent is the thing that we always have to have to find out what's really going on and to challenge the prerogatives of power and why they're doing it. It's the only thing, really, that keeps us honest as a country. Dissenters are, you know, are always called um, traitors, you know, like Edward Snowden. You know, here's a man who tells us the truth about the illegal and secret snooping on everybody's calls and emails, breaks all of our laws, and then immediately people think, oh, he's a traitor. He's one of the greatest patriots of our time because he told the truth about what's really happening. That, what was what was being done in our name with our money to spy on us? I think that the issues of the way that the media is being misused, how it's being controlled by the same corporate interests that are systematically diminishing our rights, all of the misinformation and deflection that goes on is going to have to be the subject of an entire show at some point in time because it's such a broad area of concern for so many people. It certainly is being utilized 
to control the outcomes of our current election. Everybody's aware of it, but it's still happening and people are still being influenced by it, even though they're aware that it's happening. One of the things that we love to focus on here on Love and Revolution Radio are the best practices and looking at how are we shifting the paradigm? How are we seeing changes that are effectively changing the way people think and feel about the way that we do this work in the world. And I would love for you to provide us with an example of a scenario that you've seen recently that demonstrates this heart-based movement that illustrates a new way of being, a new way of thinking in the world so that we can look to those examples as a means of actually creating a new pathway out of this war and conquest pathway that we've been on for centuries. Sure. Well, there there are lots of examples, and that's what's so exciting. When I began painting the portraits and and then began asked to, to talk and travel, you know, I was in the position, I think, of many Americans feeling kind of alienated, isolated, and despairing about how this country was being misled and if anything could be done about it. And then you start to travel and you start to meet people and see what's going on in places and that is not reported on our corporate news. And you're just stunned at the good work, the, the courageous work, the persistent work, the joyful work that's being done all over the place. Just last week, weekend, I was invited to a conference down in um, in Boston on the toxics in the environment, and it was a big environmental conference. And the keynote speaker there was a woman named Jane Clem from Nebraska. And I heard her, read about her, I thought, you know, I've got to paint this woman's portrait. Well, here's this woman, this young woman, a wife, a mother of three little girls. She had built this movement amongst these conservative big farmers in Nebraska to refuse to allow the pipeline to go across their land. I mean, if if you want to know why Keystone was really finally stopped, why the president said he wasn't going to allow Keystone to be built, it wasn't because he wised up exactly and said, I looked at this and I realized it's a bad idea because that's what he said. But it was because of the local opposition that this was built in Nebraska amongst these farmers who were as conservative as they were and as loath they were as to be involved in, a, in this kind of political battle, realized that what this was really about was their family, the future of the land, the protection of the land, their communities, and the continuity of a lifestyle. That in order to ensure those things, they had to defeat this pipeline, which was going to go right across their fields and inevitably any leaks you know, or explosions or whatever would happen would destroy everything that they had spent generations building. They did it. And this woman, who got all these farmers to start talking to each other, took all these people from different political points of view. And that's what I see more and more all around the place, is that there are people, I mean, we hear about all the partisanship and the bickering and gridlock that's in our system. Well, it is at the top. But there are grassroots efforts everywhere of people working together across all kinds of intellectual, emotional, and political divide to solve problems. So these farmers and townspeople and students and everything got together in Nebraska 
and said, no pipeline. It worked. You know, I think of Ai Jianpu, the political, I mean, a labor organizer who's a Chinese-American who's been organizing domestic workers. And she has gone around the old Saul Linsky model of the bosses against the workers, and this is a struggle against of classes, and we have to fight this struggle, and, and that's how we're going to promote it, and that's how we're going to build it, is, is like a war model. So many people are now, you see in different places in the country, building a model based on what is our common interest. So she, Ai Jen Pu, was organizing the employers as well as the employees to see that they had a common goal in treating each other well, especially the employers treating the employees well because then their children and their parents got treated better. Their houses were cleaner. There was less likelihood of, of any kind of discord and, and the care was taken. They're, they're seeing this. We've got to see both sides of this and get people to come together around a common goal. And so around workers' issues, around environmental issues, around war and peace issues, using that kind of model, uh, you see it happening in lots of places. That's a wonderful story or set of stories about people who tell the truth and seek the common heart that lies between us all, the common values that we all share. I want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Rob Shetterly, who is the painter of the Americans Who Tell the Truth series. He uh, moved to Maine in 1970 and started to teach himself painting at that point. Now, in 2002, he had a, a real renovation of the heart, a real tough moment, and decided to tell some truth by painting it. An amazing project, an amazing human being. Rob, thank you for joining us on the show. As we're heading out into our last few minutes, what are some things you'd like our listeners to consider? Oh, thank you for asking me that. One of the things that, you know, when we tell the story of this country, what is often not told, I mean, we often start with either the Declaration or our Constitution, or we tell the story of slavery sometimes. I mean, a lot of places that are not even told now, civil rights, etc. What we are, don't often tell and continue to hide and deny is the story of indigenous people here. Not just what was done to them, but also what they have to teach us. One of the most amazing moments of this whole project for me, and there have been many of them because when I paint living people, which are most of the people I paint now, you know, I go and spend time with them, I meet them, I talk with them, uh, and we think about how to support what they do. But I went to uh, Syracuse to meet Warren Lyons, who's the faith keeper of the Onondaga Nation. And one of the first things that happened when we were talking was he said to me, well, you know, we knew, and he, when he used that word we, it was like all Native people for thousands of years in the past and thousands of years in the future, if we're so lucky. We knew that when you separated church and state, it would only lead to disaster. <laughs> you know, I almost laughed. He was saying, that, you know, one of the, the great pillars of our secular constitution was being knocked down right there. You know, he says... You shouldn't have separated church and state. It would only lead to disaster. And I thought, well, what are you talking about? So I said, Oren, what are you talking about? And he said, your deepest spirituality has to come from your deepest reality. Your deepest reality is nature. That has to be the center of your spirituality. That is your, tr your church. 
And when you establish your institutions and your systems and the corporations and all the ways in which you live and separate it, the responsibility of those institutions to your church, which is nature, it could only lead to disaster. I mean, I was just stunned by the simplicity and the brilliance of, of seeing that in such a straight-ahead way. And it's, what can you say? I mean, it's, it couldn't be clearer, the disaster we're in, because we did separate our church from the responsibility to nature, our own, our state from our church. And every time I speak now, I talk about Warren, I talk about that insight, I get people to think about that. that we are always led to believe that in this country today, when you turn on the news, that our, our reality is our economy. That is not our reality. That's a construct that we have built for our own convenience that is totally separated from our real reality, which is our relationship with nature on which our lives depend. And, you know, I thank him every day for helping me understand that so clearly and then being able to go out into the world and talk to other people about it. Thank you so much, Rob, for all that you've offered us today. We've really learned a lot by sharing this time with you, and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. I need you to be love, 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 love and revolution. Thanks this week to our guest, Robert Shetterly, and to my divine co-host, Rivera Sun. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, with words and music by Diane Patterson, is performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. You can also find more information about Rob Shetterly and the Americans Who Tell the Truth Project at americanswhotellthetruth.org. And you can also follow our posts, uh, particularly Sherry's, on her Sacred Instructions Facebook page. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program. It is broadcasting on stations around the country, and it could be broadcasted through yours if you take a moment or two to contact your station manager and ask them to air it. It's very easy to do. You can reach us with any questions, comments, or ideas you might have via the Love and Revolution page on my website, www.riverasun.com. That's also where you sign up for our weekly email, which includes links to all of the pertinent details that come up in our shows. We are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podomatic. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Sherry Mitchell. Rob Shetterly has reminded us how important it is to tell the truth about our history, our present moment, and our future. Rob says, unless we are willing to name the true causes of a problem, we cannot fix it. If we don't teach our true history, its shame as well as its nobility, then we cannot know who we are. And people who don't know themselves are dangerous to themselves and to others because they act from ignorance and self-serving myths. So listeners, perhaps you'll find some new ways to know yourselves more deeply before we talk with you next week. 